Welcome all of you to episode seven of our game. Uh, I'm your co-host, Otuteng Mukhatle, and I'm joined by my big brother and usual co-host, of course, uh, Mukhatle Mukhatle. And yeah, guys, it's been an exciting start to the, the, the season um, around the world and especially around Europe. Um, you know, we've been able to see uh, the closing of the, the transfer window yesterday. Uh, we've seen some incredible uh, and surprising results across across Europe, um, you know, from, from the Bundesliga to, to, to the Premier League, etc. And of course, uh, the extended impact of, of the COVID-19 pandemic um, leading on to the Champions League, to the Champions League draw. Um, so yeah, Mkhatle, uh, it's been quite a lot that we've had to digest, you know, since we last spoke. It's only been about a week and a half, two weeks. Um, but so much in between has filled us with so much uh, filler for conversation, you know? Definitely, man. Thank you so much for that introduction. Welcome, guys. And thanks for your continued support to our game. As my bro mentioned, we've got quite a quite a cool episode to to get through. Um, but before we do, we must just remind you that uh, this is a remote podcast. My bro is over there um, in Manchester, where just 48 hours ago, um, United fans were were licking their wounds, um, and I'm here in Joburg, where it never ends. It never ends. So bear with us and uh, strap in, and let's let's get into a cool discussion about the thing we love on our game indeed man uh yeah let's kick ourselves off and let's just discuss you know the the, the amount of spending you know we've seen uh through the covid period you know we've seen a lot of a lot of deals despite you know the the difficulties that this pandemic has has and has put many uh football institutions balance sheets through um, so yeah, man. Like, do you, what are the trends that you've noticed? Um, you know, on, yeah. the, on the transfer window, in the transfer window, despite and and, and because of COVID. You know? Yeah. Well, the transfer window just ended a matter of a few hours ago, um, and I think it's quite strange for us seasoned football fans to see a transfer window ending in October, and that'll obviously have a knock-on effect um, on 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 the season as well as. You know, on the international break, which also sort of started yesterday. So I think a lot of players around Europe are probably signed for their clubs, but uh, you know, have either had to travel or um, you know are not going to be playing a game this coming weekend. Um, but just in terms of the way money has been spent, um, if I can look at some of the, the different leagues individually, what I've noticed is that. In Italy, for example, they've been very, very prudent with money. A lot of the top players have been able to stay in Italy. Um, some would maybe say, you know, Miralem Pjanic, maybe Douglas Costa, Juve, um, you know, have, uh, have have left the league, but the league has managed to, to get even stronger with incoming transfers um, and players that have circled around, um, around the peninsula. Um, and then in other leagues like Spain, uh, Germany, you know, the money has been relatively prudent where a lot of the transfers, even big name transfers have been, you know, based on obligation deals. So, you know, loans, uh, repurchase agreements where you've seen, you know, big players, uh, you know, come and go. Um, but, you know, the balance sheet is still being respected. And then we, have, of course, have our friends over in, 
in England who uh, haven't seemed to have suffered much from COVID-19 <laughs> um, from a balance sheet perspective. Um, we've seen clubs spend big, Liverpool, Chelsea, even Arsenal. Um, I know you were quite impressed with Arsenal's deadline day signing of Thomas Partey. 100%, yeah, man. Like It was a really exciting deadline day, uh, especially considering how many teams still had a few a few holes that needed to be plugged, you know. Um, but definitely of the deadline day deals we saw, uh, Thomas Partey is my favourite um, across all, all the main leagues, simply because of the fact that this is potentially a game-changing transfer for Arsenal's midfield. They've been crying out for a midfield of his, his ilk for, for years, maybe even since Patrick Vieira left in 2005 to Juventus. Um, you know, when I look at his influence, um, for Atletico, people tend to think of him as a simple defensive midfielder, uh, you know, who's strong and aggressive and fits in well with the Simeone, uh, uh, you know, uh, philosophy. But if you look at it, he was Atletico's. He made the most tackles in Atletico's Champions League uh, run last year. He had the most touches. He made the most passes into the final third, and he created the most open play chances, as well as had the third most amount of shots in the team. So he leads the he led Atletico um, in many different categories, showing that he's an all-action, all-purpose midfielder, um, and is has, still has the best year of his career ahead of him. You know, he's he's a, already 27, yes, but you can see that he still is still sharpening a bit of his game, but with the great coaching that I'm seeing and the improvement of individual players under uh, Arteta, I think Arsenal are a much more complete team simply by this, simply by virtue of this, this transfer. So that was for me the most uh, exciting, but also the most necessary transfer we saw. And interesting that it took so long for Arsenal to get the deal across the line. It almost didn't transpire because you know the transfer deadline was about to was about to hit. Um, so yeah, it was, I was very pleased for for Arsenal fans who've been crying out mm. for a field of this quality um, for yeah. a long time. And he's African as well, so it's <laughs> nice to, to, to see that as well. Yeah, look, I think it's a great transfer for Arsenal. Um, they were able to get uh, you know Dani Cavallos from Real Madrid. Everyone knows about William, who has had a great start to the season. So it's a fantastic move for both the player and the club. Um, and I think across, you know, England, we spoke last episode about Chelsea, um, the ZX, the uh, Shilwells, Werner, Thiago Silva, obviously Kai Harvitz as well. Um, you know, they they they've spent big, they've spent big, big, big. But I think Arsenal's um, transfer of Thomas Partey is probably their only major, um, you know, financial transaction. And you know, we also have other clubs that have you know brought in very very good players consistent well-rounded performers uh, Everton I think you're seeing it from their results they've managed to bring in guys like James Rodriguez Alan um, Bed Godry from Norwich for I think 25 30 million pounds and you know these are players that have kept up or increased the level of competition um, in, in, in England and uh, we even have you know the usual suspects like Manchester City um, probably not spending as much um, as, as they have in the past um, but you know they, they've, they've still managed to to bring some good players in um, I think for me one of the best transfers in in, in the UK uh, you know you, you you've met me with with Partey I'll, I'll, I'll raise you Tiago Alcantara 
Um, he came in for only £20 million from Bayern Munich. I think the low transfer fee was because Munich knew they were not going to um, you know, get get this player to to renew. You know, as you mentioned with uh, Partey, I, 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 I love the transfer. Um, of course, uh, Liverpool have already got quite a well-respected midfield. Um, Jordan Henderson probably is the one who is the most threatened by Thiago's transfer, but he was a standout player for me in Bayern Munich's Champions League run. He's someone who, you know, doesn't shine out and, you know, score, you know, 15, 20 goals. He's, you know, your modern day passmaster central midfielder. And uh, I think it's a great transfer for Liverpool. As soon as they're able to integrate him into the team, um, he's going to ma- maintain the competitive, the competitiveness that Liverpool require. And, uh, that was a very big um, transfer for me. Um, if we look outside of uh, you know England, but before we do, um, the the best golfer in in in, in football has has gone back to his to his hometown, um, back to Tottenham Hotspur, Gareth Bale. Um, you know, and it's 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 just shown how 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 things how things the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, but yeah, there've also been some other fundamental transfers that I've seen Arturo Vidal going back to Inter Milan he's already playing like he's played there um, for years and uh, it's just been a seamless transition for him uh, Chelsea as we mentioned you know I think are still the winners of the transfer season but there's other clubs around the world you mentioned Lyon who have managed to you know I think the best transfers for them have been keeping um some of their top players like Awa and uh, Memphis Depay who was quite close to to Barcelona perhaps there just wasn't enough time between the season and the close of the transfers for players to to make these moves but um you know I think Leon can consider themselves a winner not for who they've bought but for who they've kept and uh yeah there's 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 some really interesting transfers out there man yeah and speaking of Leon and uh your connection to them they were able to loan in Mattia De Chiglio, um, mm. and a nice uh, segue into that would be Juve's also deadline day purchase of uh, of uh, Federico Chiesa. Uh, tell me, man. I mean, just very quickly, any thought? What are your thoughts on this transfer? I mean, he he's a player that divides opinion amongst Italian football fans um, far and wide, even Fiorentina fans themselves. You know, um, so how do you see him fitting into the Juventus project this season and long term? Juventus are currently, um, they've set a record at the end of the transfer deadline. Um, they currently have only six Italians in their squad and they've been known to be, you know, a squad that have always had a lot of Italian players. Now, bringing in a guy like Chiesa, um, I think some of the hype comes from the fact that his father was a very well-rounded football player who, uh, uh, the young Chiesa's teammate Gigi Buffon actually played with as well. So Buffon has played with father and son, um, That's just crazy. which is quite quite interesting. Um, he played with 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 Chiesa senior at Parma, but I think for the for, for for those that appreciate the Chiesa transfer is the fact that he's Italian. Um, right now, serious Grinta Italian football fans uh, are are looking at the likes of Chiesa. Um, you know, to to really transform the the Italian league, but also the Italian national team to its heyday. And uh, what 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 makes 
Chiesa an exciting transfer is his ability to play on both sides of the wings up front um, as a trequartista. You know, he's, he's, he's quite adept with both feet. Um, he's quick, he's hardworking and he's young. Uh, he obviously still has quite a bit to learn, but he's been a standout player at Fiorentina for two seasons now. And um, I think, you know, it was time for him to move to a bigger club. Uh, where he lacks is probably, you know, in his in his in his experience, um, and maybe if he was to raise his consistency, um, that would probably be a, be a credit to him. But I think that's probably the you know the main issue: the fact that you know he doesn't have a defined position, and that's probably why someone like Federico Bernardeschi, his now teammate at Juve, has not really gotten to the level that um, people have wanted or expected of him. So. It'll be interesting to see how Andrea Pirlo uses him. Um, I think Juventus are, were already a very motivated team. You saw it from their 3-0 victory against Sampdoria on opening match day. But we also saw how Juventus came back from 10 men to uh, you know at least take a point away from AS Roma. And bringing in a guy like Chiesa, where most Juve fans, myself included, would probably have thought that you know we would have tried to get another central midfielder shows the kind of football that Juventus are probably going to be playing this season. Um, players like Kulusevski coming in, uh, Chiesa, Juve are probably wanting to play high intensity attacking football and hopefully take a little bit of um, responsibility off CR7's shoulders. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and what excites me about the Juve roster is the interchangeability of Many of the players on like on the team, they can play many positions, and they can play to, as you say, a very very high intensity. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how Perlo develops, you know, his tactics and as well as the strategy of the team, game by game, especially with so many games coming up soon. Um, but let's talk about a la- the lack thereof of games, you know, um, the non. The non-match that took place between uh, Juventus and Napoli this past weekend, you know, we saw, we've seen some crazy results across Europe, but this feels for me the craziest. So, can you just, you know, explain a bit as to what happened there? Um, because if you, log- <laughs> if you logged on to, or if you tuned into whatever channel you are going to watch it on, be it Premium Sport, Super Sport, ESPN, you wouldn't have seen anything but a stadium and the two teams' logos for the duration of the game. So what happened there? Why did Napoli not turn up to Turin? Well, I think I think the first and most exciting part about this match that didn't happen, which Juve currently have three points for, was seeing best friends and AC Milan historical teammates, World Cup winners, Andrea Perlo and Gennaro Gattuso coming up against one another from the touchline. Um, looking at the kind of play that we've mentioned Juve wanting to play, uh, resonating with the coach that we've known the footballer to be, Andrea Perlo, and looking at this dogged, um, never-say-die mentality that we've seen with Catuso, you look at two teams that really play with the personalities of their very, very young coaches. Um, but before <laughs> any football was played, uh, the expectation was that um, you know, we would we, we would see an exciting football match, but in the the week before the game, uh, it was found that there were 14 Genoa players who tested positive for COVID, and uh, they obviously had to take tests um, in Napoli to figure out whether it's safe or 
them to travel to Turin, um, let alone play any football at all. And it was found that I think only one or two first team players um, were were tested positive at Napoli, and uh, there was this huge debate between you know Napoli and its president, and you know the municipal uh, government, the public health uh, municipality at, at at Napoli, as to who was making the final say um, for whether or not Napoli should travel to to Turin. Um, but the bottom line is that there is this incubation period which Serie A started um, towards the end of um, the, the the previous 19-20 season and the incubation period basically is a much more shortened period so that matches can go on and Napoli were of the opinion that they have to stay but Juve were of the opinion that they have to play and that's what you know the rules say so it hasn't yet been decided uh, the FIGC uh, are still going to make a decision as to whether Juve can keep the points and dock a point from Napoli but it was very entertaining to watch Juventus get out of their bus bring about their starting lineup, have their players attend the warm-up in a you know empty stadium without any opposition in the stadium and uh, it was something that we'll <laughs> maybe see again in the future depending on what this precedent shows but it also just sort of touches on this Italian ilk of politics um, you know always creeping into Italian football uh, but one thing is for sure we were not able to see Perlo and Gattuso playing together and uh, with COVID-19 bringing about this uh, uh, uncertainty for all parties involved there's now you know the camp saying that Juve don't respect you know healthcare and there's a camp saying that Napoli don't respect the rules and I think this is something that probably needs to be dealt with sooner than later because you and I were discussing it on Sunday that there was actually no official word from the Italian league as to you know Juve's conduct or Napoli's conduct or lack thereof and uh, it has obviously created a little bit of a a dark patch in 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 the season so far. Yeah, man, um, a, do- a dark patch with no match having been played. Um, but I would rather that, at least results-wise, um, in the short term, than dealing with um, a seven-two loss or a or a six-one loss, as we saw um, arch rivals Liverpool and Manchester United deal with back in England. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you watched the uh, Man United game in a bar. And uh, I remember just before the game kicked off, um, we saw Jose Mourinho speaking about, you know, um, playing against his, his old team as now as the Tottenham coach and, uh, you know, having some words about uh, Ole Gunnar Skolshire. But <laughs> before you tell me how it was watching the Man United uh, humiliation in a bar in Manchester, I'll remember one of the pundits, the top Liverpool pundits, saying there's no way that, uh, you know, uh, with the lineup that Liverpool had, they will leave the stadium without a clean sheet. And there's no way that they'll be embarrassed the same way their, their biggest rival, Man United, was embarrassed. However, that wasn't to be. It was absolutely incredible. Um, I'll start with Manchester United because that was the earlier game. 
and that's the game that I, I saw with my fellow Mancunians. But, uh, you know, it's one thing to lose um, by such a margin. And of course, across maybe a 10 year period, all clubs are, are due such a loss. You know, we've seen Barcelona beat Real Madrid 5 0. We've seen uh, uh, AC Milan beat Inter 6 0 in a derby. Um, you know, so, of course, we could we even see Man United themselves lose 6 1 to their arch rivals, Man City, recently, at least nine mm. um, in that crazy 6 1 loss. But what sticks out for me here is the fact that this game is or this game was the culmination of everything wrong with Manchester United um, as a football institution um, you know a lot of what what brings down United from at least a, a public relations perspective um, at least from the lens of onlookers both neutrals and fans and rival fans as well um, is the lack of you know uh, care that the administration at the top has for the for the playing staff in, in terms of uh, bringing in better players, in terms of being proactive, in terms of signing players, in terms of managerial decisions, um, and and the like. But in the game in a microcosm was yes, very entertaining. But I was honestly shocked and disgusted actually by the standard of defending. Um, that Manchester United produced on the day. Produce is the better word to use. Or didn't produce. Um, <laughs> didn't produce. I was happy to see Eric Bailly back in the lineup because outside of Maguire and Lindelof, um, he's had his injury issues, which has stopped him from being a more frequent uh, player, you know, in terms of starting matches, at least big matches like this. And he, he had his chance. I and mean, before it was even. Three, four, five, six, one. He was making solid blocks. He was, you know, showing himself to be present. But beyond that, every single time Spurs threw in extra numbers to the box, the United defense would simply fall and wilt like a dying flower. Um, and <laughs> left, it left a dying red flower, dying red, red flower. rose. Yeah, and it left De Gea totally exposed. Um, it left. It also exposed the deficiencies in terms of defensive structure um, that the team, you know, has right now. Uh, men weren't being picked up on set pieces. Uh, Spurs players were able to run to make late runs into the box. We of course saw the first goal where Harry Maguire was. I don't know what he was doing with Luke Shaw, but he decided to pull him down um, while <laughs> trying to block uh, Tony Ndombele's equaliser in the first few minutes. Um, and this is after Man United took the lead of a penalty after two minutes. And it's 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 the, if you look at the goals again, and of course if you look at the match again, this team conceded goals of all sorts. They conceded from wide positions. They conceded from defensive mistakes. They conceded from uh, defending in transition. So, you know, if Tottenham just added extra, whenever Tottenham added extra runners, the team would the, the United defense would just falter. Moving on to Liverpool. They lost five to uh, seven two, and it was a you know a culmination of so many deflections and of course horrible defending as well. Um, we did see Salah manage to score two brilliant goals, but it just brings the question to mind as to you know yes, people there are mitigating circumstances with crazy results like this. Yes, it is entertaining, but we have to ask ourselves um, as 
you know students of the game and you know individuals and groups who are interested in in, in the game beyond just results and statistics etc what are the the sort of trends we're seeing now we've seen premier league teams um especially at the top end continually uh you know make themselves known to be looking for better defenders across the across the european market you know we've long known about manchester united's defensive deficiencies we've not know, long known that you know man city have wanted kalidou koulibaly or and or any other top young center backs um, we've seen them spend 114 million now in total uh, on uh, nathan ake and ruben diaz from benfica and I, I must ask myself, when I look across the rosters in the Premier League, defensively, there is no team that inspires confidence. Before this weekend, I would have simply said Liverpool. But if you're going to concede seven goals to Aston Villa, a team that, no matter which way you slice it, barely avoided relegation last season, uh, you know, yes, it's a mitigating circumstance to say lack of preparation, lack of preseason, you know, games shoved very close to one another. You know, so you're playing often, you have to rotate a bit more. But if you're going to defend like that, it's also now bringing the question as to how well, not well coached, but how well structured the teams are being set out to play. Um, you know, so there are many questions that that are need, that need to be answered beyond just, and that also cannot just be fixed by, you know, buying a new centre-back or buying a new, you could, like, if anyone was watching Manchester United, you would know, they could buy Messi and Ronaldo, they could have Koulibaly and Sergio Ramos, that team would still give up at least half as many goals in the game like that because there just simply was a lack of structure and a lack of, you know, people talk about passion and they talk about uh, fighting for the badge, but you also need to be smart about how you set up your team. Um, and what I saw from Man, U Man United was just shocking. And, you know, as we tend to say, oh, give a manager time, but Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has, has shown me that he does not have the requisite uh, capability to get Manchester United closer to uh, the level of Liverpool and Manchester City in terms of you know, challenging for the league title and you know any other honours on offer. Yeah, well, you mentioned defences and before this match day you would have only referred to Liverpool and obviously Van Dijk has always been known as a giant uh, and there's players like Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold who have been able to, you know, bring these consistent performances which have seen them win the Champions League and then, the, you know, the Premier League after so many years. But the reality is it's probably not an issue of the personnel. You know, Sergio Ramos, Koulibaly, fantastic players. But like Ronaldo and Messi, you look at the team, you look at the structure, the way the teams play around them. And it's not enough for Liverpool or Man United to lose games the way they lost and blame the fixture list because at the moment, the fixture list is pretty much the same for Tottenham Hotspur and Aston Villa. One has to also think about the fact that maybe they're playing, you know, behind closed doors or in empty stadiums. And, you know, you'll have an Aston Villa who have the confidence to look at the tactics of the game and say, we can truly play this match like it's a final, even though we've got a very long season ahead of us. People also make excuses. We were chatting earlier about, you know, the Premier League having, you know, only three subs, whereas in the Champions League and in all other leagues, Italy, for example, there's five substitutions allowed in a game. 
with some regulations around that. But Aston Villa also have three subs. Tottenham also have three subs. And it's a historical issue now. Um, I think one of the main issues for Man City as to why they haven't ever been able to get to the Champions League final is probably for that very reason that, you know, defensively, they just do not have the capable setup to manage the kind of games that they've needed to manage since Man City became a Champions League contender. Truth be told, seeing seven goals be leaked, seeing six goals be conceded, um, some will call it fun, others will call it fantasy football or you know FIFA television. But as you say, there's a lot of underlying issues that need to be dealt with and it probably doesn't just end with the players on the pitch. Um, a lot must be said about the organization within the, the squad, within the way that the players are set up to to play and understand one another. Um, because yeah, I, I watching the, the, the Liverpool match was <laughs> even in the last 10-15 minutes when Aston Villa was seven goals up, they were still going at it and trying to score goals. And if my eyes were closed, I'd probably, you know, hearing the commentator say hit the crossbar, I'd probably think that we're talking about Bayern Munich Barcelona two months ago. <laughs> Actually, indeed, man. Yeah, and just speaking of Barcelona, they've been able to win their first two games um, in La Liga and they drew to, of course, a very strong Sevilla side in what was a very even game. Um, I think La Liga has started off on quite an even keel comparison to the Premier League. We've seen Madrid um, win three of their four opening games. We've seen uh, Real Betis and Sociedad also um, step up and you know reach the top four positions, top three positions. Um, but I think we will be able to also. I think it's still too early to discuss you know predictions or who we think um, across all leagues. You know who we think will. Um, win a league or who will qualify for X position um, in X position for whatever competition that we discuss um, but it's nice to see teams like Everton you know uh, leading the Premier League now um, with what they've been able to do in the transfer window um, and definitively improve the team it's great to see Atalanta continue their project um, on the pitch by winning games convincingly the first ever Serie A team uh, the, f- the first ever Serie A team to score four goals in each of their opening three games um, yeah that is that is we've been speaking about Atalanta for the better part of 18 if not 24 months now and they are actually improving they are getting better than they were you know um, a year ago and uh they're not your fly-by-night team. They've managed to maintain their, their strongest players. But they are playing a modern football that, you know, deserves them to win titles. And uh, I remember the heartbreak that you and I had against Paris Saint-Germain a few months ago, <laughs> uh, where we genuinely thought that they were going to get through that knockout game. Yeah, and uh, I think you look at their roster, you look at how... They've been able to, as you say, keep their best players. But whenever you see them play, it is that is PlayStation football in terms of absolutely sweeping their opponents off the floor. Um, no matter who they're playing, they play with an almost childlike, carefree confidence. Um, and it's I don't think players like Alejandro Gomez or 
Hossi Ilicic, etc. If they were playing for any other team, they would not be able to reproduce this sort of form. Of course, they've always had the talent to do so, but um, Ilicic aside, who hasn't played for two, three months, but you look at players like Martin Deroen, you look at Duvan Zapata, Muriel, these are players, each and every single uh, player on the, the Atalanta roster, even their goalkeeper, Marco Sportiello, who is their second choice, gets game time due to owing, owing to injury, injuries or, you know, um, a tactical uh, tweak um, in-game in, in, in and, of course, in between games. Every single player contributes brilliantly to what is an extremely well-oiled machine. And I must be honest, outside of Juventus, I genuinely believe Atalanta are front, not even dark horses, they are front runners for the Scudetto. And I don't think they would be out of their minds to think so themselves, because on any day, they can honestly challenge any team in world football, um, let alone 19 other teams in the Serie A. Um, and in terms of challenging for league titles, it'll be very interesting to see what RB Leipzig and Borussia Dortmund can do. Um, no team in Germany has won their opening uh, three matches. You know, we've seen Bayern lose um, quite shockingly as well last weekend. They <laughs> lost 4-1. We've seen Augsburg beat Borussia Dortmund. Um, so, you know, it will be interesting to see what I believe will be a three-horse race. Bayern Munich have been able to um, cover for what people deem to be a lack of squad depth by you know, buying uh, a few players towards the end of the, the transfer window, um, including Eric Chopo-Moting, along with, uh, they brought in Mark uh, Roca from Espanyol, um, who's a young yes. Spanish midfielder of the ilk of Javi Martinez. So I think the team is much better placed, of course, the inclusion of Douglas Costa on that loan deal. You know, they, they finally, once again, have two players per position. Um, so, yeah, I think we might be seeing with Erling Haaland scoring goals for fun and fully settled into the Dortmund team now with Giovanni Reina there, Jadon Sancho, Marco Royce, um, and a, a, a very well-coached Leipzig team who, yes, they've lost their most well-known player team of Rona. They don't, skip, they don't seem to have skipped a beat um, despite that loss. So, um, yeah, I think we're in for a great Bundesliga season, but I must say everything needs to be taken with a pinch of salt considering the fact that uh, we will see uh, a Champions League group stage campaign which will last about six to eight, six to seven weeks um, instead of the nominal three month campaign. So players and rosters will be put under a lot of stress in the coming, the coming months and will be brilliant to watch both in the Champions League, Europa League and of course between um, the leagues themselves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at, um, we've discussed Liverpool and Atalanta um, in, in, in quite contrasting, you know, discussions already. And they share a group stage in the Champions League. They, they're in Group D with uh, Thailand and, and Ajax Amsterdam. Uh, we have a very good friend who uh, you know very well who lives in Amsterdam, who always complains that Ajax get a tough draw. And, you know, they will probably complain having to deal with Liverpool and Atalanta. He, all, he also always complains that uh, Manchester City always get the easiest group and they sit in Group C against FC Porto, Marseille and Olympiacos, which you know in itself could be seen as a group of death for all the teams that are not Manchester City. But uh, 
I would like to th- probably think that the Liverpool Ajax Atalanta group probably has the uh, the most exciting, uh, free-flowing, attacking football group out of all the this 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 Champions League season, which, as you've mentioned, is going to be a very very short, um, very very efficient uh, group stage. Yeah, if you if you're saying that that'll be a group of death in terms of goals or goal potential, expected goals, as the statisticians like to say. Yeah, I do believe that'll be the most fun group to to look at. I'm also very keen to see how a, a team like Lazio adapts to the Champions League. And they have uh, Bruges, uh, Zenit, Russian Zenit and Dortmund. What are your thoughts about um, you know Lazio's chances in that group? I think it's a very evenly matched group um, for any for all teams you know, in, in, in it, um, I think they all have an equal chance of qualifying. Dortmund have to consider themselves to be favourites, um, and they need to, if they're serious about advancing or going far into the competition, they need to exert their dominance. Um, they don't have it as difficult a group as they did last year with Inter and Barcelona in it. Um, but all three of their of their challenges or, or of their um, opposition can, on any given day, be a challenge to any team. Um, traveling to to Russia can take its toll. So I think there are points to be won and lost for every team. And outside of Dortmund, I do I would lean in favor of Zenit or Lazio going through. Um, so yeah, I think Lazio do have a good chance of qualifying, but they would need Chiro Immobile, Milinkovic Savic, um, and uh, Luis Alberto to to step up. Um, and produce produce goals um, where, where needed. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how their lack of defensive depth adapts week by week because we saw it again this past weekend against Inter. Uh, mitigating circumstances aside, Inter really should have steamrolled Lazio. Um, and it'll be tough for Acherbi and... Uh, Luis Felipe to consistently produce the goods against what is a very very strong group, while contending with the with the goal of challenging for maybe a scudetto, but if not, challenging for a top four place in Italy. I think the squad is short staffed at the moment, which a lot of Lazio fans are quite upset about. You know, yes, they've kept their best players, but they've also added very little to what is already a good roster and just actually needs an extra step up to. If they were able to add to their to this to their squad quality-wise, I would say they they should quali- they would be able to qualify. But I don't trust them considering the fact that, that this is the Champions League and it's a huge huge step up. Agreed, agreed. You know the step up is real, and the same can be said as we mentioned Man United, the current way in which you know the team is structured. Um, they have a Group H with uh, Leipzig. Uh, Basaké from from Turkey, Istanbul, and obviously Paris Saint Germain. And you know, if they're not careful, they may find themselves getting knocked out of that group. They managed to bring in uh, the effervescent Edison Cavani from PSG, but uh, there's no guarantees in the Champions League. We also have quite uh, exciting groups A and B, uh, with very well-known Champions League compatriots Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. And in Group B, we have your your Inter Milan coming up against Real Madrid. Um, seems like Inter Milan are getting quite used to Spanish opposition in the group stages. 
Yeah, I'm just happy that we don't have to face uh, Luis Torres and Messi again. Because it's been the bane of my existence for the last two years in the Champions. <laughs> yeah, I was quite confident about uh, Inter Milan's chances of, uh, you know, getting getting that first first prize of last season's group stage. Uh, were it not for, you know, Barcelona's attitude towards, you know, attacking football, but I think, you know, with Real Madrid, Shakhtar, and Borussia Mönchengladbach, I would. But you guys are in quite a good position unless you've got something to say about Real Madrid's current roster and their their opportunities in this short group stage. No, I think they have a very big squad to Real Madrid, um, especially in midfield and attack. Um, we still want we're still waiting for the best of Eden Hazard. Um, the Champions League nights like this are where he can become decisive. But Inter definitely have everything, if not more than enough, to qualify um, for the next round. We know what uh, Shakhtar are like, having beaten them 5-0 not so long ago. Um, and we should be able to uh, beat uh, Mönchengladbach home and away. Uh, I would be very surprised if we don't qualify for the next round. And we'll, it would simply be our fault because the team is 10 times more balanced than it's been in the last 5-10 to 10 years. And the environment around the club is positive. Um, everything is pointing towards qualification. So now it's just about execution. Um, and finally, man, uh, the last group that I would like to discuss is Group E with Sevilla, Chelsea, Ren and Krasnodar. Um, I think Chelsea might have their, their work cut out for them in terms of qualifying in first place. Um, this is a team that's still settling itself, you know, and I think Sevilla will be quite confident. They're a cup team, as we all know, as the Europa League winners. Um, and yeah, you know, we can't count out teams like Ren or Krasnodar who can spring a surprise in any day. Um, you know, Ren were able to bring in Daniele Rugani um, from Juventus as well. So that will help shore up their defense, even though they did lose Eduard Mendy to, as the aforementioned, Chelsea. So yeah, I think that's also quite, a, quite an evenly matched group, of course, with Sevilla and Chelsea being the favorite, but with such a, with such a, you know, a, a full calendar. You know, we we I think we are in for some surprises, at least in terms of both qualification and individual results. Definitely, I think there'll all be um, quite a lot of nice games to watch between now and December. We don't have to wait for the knockout rounds to 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 enjoy some seriously scintillating football. Um, Juve and Barcelona are, are, are going to meet up twice between now and December. And already in October, and uh, yeah, quite you know, much look forward to to seeing Real Madrid and and, and Inter Milan um, lock horns. So it's going to be a fun fun season, and uh, I hope you know it'll give us a lot more to talk about as we as we give you guys a few more episodes to enjoy. But uh, yeah, I wonder what what our friends in football have to say what their thoughts are on the top transfers, what their thoughts are on, you know, the the, the Champions League group stage. And uh, yeah, I think that probably wraps it up for us today. Yeah, it's been a brilliant episode. I'm glad that there's been so much to discuss. And I'm hoping you as listeners um, don't despair too much if you're a fan of United or Liverpool. But I'm also hoping that you are excited, you know, with some of the, the transfer deals that were able to be completed. Um, across all the leagues and of course with so much um, football to be played between you know the restart of football after international break and December 
Um, so yeah, I'm quite there's a lot to look forward to and including our next episode, episode eight, which will discuss, you know, the young coaches coming through um, in football, mm. um, as well as quite a controversial topic, uh, racism and the, the coaching fraternity. So um, mm. tune in for that. And yeah, there's a lot for us to discuss and hopefully a lot that you guys can take away. Definitely, man. Well, as we've just commenced the international break, um, let's hope that it uh, comes to an end as quickly as it started. Um, but if you guys get bored and you feel like you haven't seen enough football, just try and switch on to any one of the golfing channels in your region and maybe you'll see Gareth Bale there. <laughs> yeah, man, hopefully in the PGA Tour. <laughs> <laughs> Wishing you a lovely one and thanks again, man. Thank you to all the listeners. <laughs>